You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steedsell as a senior writer here at the Washington Post. My guest today is historian Simon Sharma, author most recently of Foreign Bodies, Pandemics, Vaccines and the Health of Nations. Professor Sharma, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Francis. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you surprised me a little bit with this book. You have written about institutions, the British Empire. You've written about art history, great events like the French Revolution. Um, And in this book, you write, all history is natural history. And I wonder what brought you to that realization and what prompted you to take on public health and pandemics? Right. Um, well, a terrible case of imposter syndrome, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing my job. <laughs> From which I've been saved by my wife, without whom I couldn't have done this, why the book's dedicated to her. She's a geneticist, a scientist, and right, she was what I call right. my bullshit backstop. So um, <laughs> I, I will say that um, there are many reasons. I did actually write a book called Landscape and Memory that came out, goodness, um, in, in the mid-1990s, really, um, which was really about how um, nature, the way we see it, is always determined by um, our own so our own obsessions with whatever happens to be the crucial dilemmas of the time. So it's about the the shaping of the landscape. So and I did teach a course on environmental history. That doesn't really answer your question, but I but I for a long time felt actually that a lot of the subjects which you do, revolutions, wars, politics, and so on, end up, as as you correctly quoted me, Francis, being circumscribed by mighty natural forces, you know, sometimes within our control, sometimes not within our control. And I guess the second thing is um, that, uh, you know, when you're getting on, and I'm very, very far <laughs> on indeed, I'm in what a writer friend of mine called the springtime of senility, a, a, a characterization I, I can vouch for, you can do two things. You can either, um, if history is your trade, you can either actually take a stroll down memory lane and there's nothing wrong with <clears throat> picturesque um, picturesque escapism, I suppose, or you can wire yourself rather urgently to what seems to matter to the present and future. I mean, when I was growing up as an historian, we were warned against what was then in England, you may remember it called presentism, the the sin of projecting your own present preoccupations back into the past. On the other hand, there is Thucydides who founded history in the Western tradition, and he was a protagonist in the Peloponnesian Wars of what he wrote. And his mission really, in a critical way, a self-critical way, was to wire yourself to something that really matters. And um, I have grandchildren, and um, you know, you want a good future for them. And when you look at those adorable little ones, um, you think, well, we have all these existential crises come hurtling at us like meteor showers, really. Biological, environmental, the enormous, huge kind of waves of migration that happen because certain parts of the world are not sustainable for human habitat anymore. And you want somehow to connect with this. Um, finally, um, I, I would say that um, if you were surprised, Francis, there's nothing compared to my publishers who are expecting a totally different book <laughs> about about nationalism, particularly what I call the culture of nationalism, which I've written a fair bit about. 
Um, and getting ever more desperate about, about that subject, I wanted to go to a place where I thought nationalism for once would be set aside in the common interest. And when the pandemic hit, I thought, well, that's got to be about, you know, um, with any luck, we'll get a vaccine. There'll be common policy established through the WHO about procurement. You know, that's how much of a naive chump I was. But it led me to the World Health Organization archive online. We were all you know, uh, all historians' blessings, the treasures of online archives. And that led me to something with the unappealing title of the International Sanitary Conferences of the 19th Century. Um, brought together the first international organization that wasn't to do with military alliance or peace treaties. And that led me, um, this was, it was organized first in 1851 to fight cholera internationally. And that led me to the extraordinary figure of Marcel Proust's father, Adrien Proust, who was a great mover and shaker. And, you know, the writer, you, you've written about all these things, you know very well. You, you, you take a number of high-minded topics, but ultimately, if you smell a story, you sit up, bolt upright, and you think, okay, there's there's something to write about here. So lo Long-winded answer to your question, sorry. But you're not the only historian to miss out on these great disease stories, right? I, I you know, I, there are exceptions. This John Barry's wonderful 1918 book about the the flu, sorry, book about the 1918 flu. Yep. Um, but but we've missed out on this great driver of human history, right? The reshaper of human history. Right. Yes. I mean, I, I, it, it's it's so eloquent for all kinds of um, revelations, really, or, or illuminations, really, about the human condition. I mean, at, at its most generalized, it throws a really shockingly brilliant light on the paradox of you know, how humans live in our own day. On the one hand, um, you know, we're capable of the most extraordinary achievements of scientific breakthroughs, the ones that brought us a vaccine to deal with COVID-19 in unimaginably short time. On the other hand, well, this barely evolved cartload of paranoia and suspicion <laughs> and madness. And I think, I think, you know, when, when I was growing up, I don't know about you, um, I had wonderful teachers at, at school just uh, in London who thought the Enlightenment would finally win. And with the spread of knowledge, superstition, ignorance, fear and poverty would, you know, be banished over the horizon. So, um, you know, fat chance to that, that proved to be How wrong. wrong. I mean, modernity, yeah, modernity is um, particularly with the shortening of communications, they were worried about railway trains and steamships in the 19th century, were worried about um, uh, air traffic. Modernity is something that viruses love to hitch a ride on. Yeah, absolutely. But first, most of what you write about uh, is well before the time of the WHO, before clinical trials, before giant pharmaceutical companies that, that produce these fantastic vaccines. So now when you look at the contemporary global response, how do you grade it? Was it surprising, given the, this historical knowledge you've got, how we responded this time around? Well, I, I, it had elements both of good news and bad news, didn't it, I think, actually. Um, uh, it was a victory for scientific enlightenment, as it were, that vaccines were produced so astonishingly uh, quickly. And um, if, if the prophylactic capabilities of vaccines uh, to protect you from actually getting um, COVID-19, or particularly a new strain of 
mutated virus, then it was possibly a tiny bit oversold. But what was absolutely radically not oversold and still not oversold, I got my latest vaccination yesterday, was protecting us um, from the severity of <coughs> lethal risks and extreme disease, hospitalizations and all the rest of it. So Act One in when COVID-19 arrived early in, in 2020, late 19, early 2020, was, you know, the panic and terror. And uh, it was, you know, in New York, I'm sure it was the same in Washington. It was a sort of incredibly frightening situation. It wasn't only that everything ground to a halt. Um, the sense in which you could contract this extremely scary, life-threatening, potentially life-threatening um, disease, infectious disease, but from respiratory droplets on with the masks and so on. Um, and then followed, you know, um, with this astonishing breakthrough of, of the vaccines being made available. So that happened and measurably successful in, in preventing the severity of, of, of COVID-19. But then Act Two, um, all the old manic demons came back. I mean, it, it's, it's um, you know, famously embodied in the switch by the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, who initially, it's convenient for him, he's become such a kind of enemy of vaccination now, convenient for him to forget that he was quite correctly a champion of vaccination uh, during that extreme and rather traumatic time. Um, what was really depressing was that when he thought he could gain political traction by reversing himself, by you know uh, ending lockdown, and then embarking, as he does now, on a campaign of saying, well, vaccinations are really a plot by sinister governmental authorities, the deep state, to control oh. your daily life. So there in one man, we have the kind of split personality right. of contemporary human habit, and it's extremely depressing. Simon, and dangerous. I, want ask, dangerous. I want to ask you about one of the enduring mysteries of this pandemic, and it's a question who, that comes from one of our, our, our listeners. Um, and I know you mentioned it in the book. It comes from Shelley uh, Cornell, her name is. And Shelley writes, what do you believe is the origin story of COVID-19? Again, you write about it, but you had book Right, deadlines. I do. <laughs> I do. With, with the modest tentativeness, I hope, of someone <laughs> who is not an epidemiologist, let alone a virologist. I'm okay. just simply, um, I hope, a kind of... Um, in, in intelligent and eager reader of the scientific literature. Mm. And uh, so, uh, you know, this comes with all those caveats and, and um, warnings, really. But my sense is that, well, first of all, I should say, and, and again, I know if my wife is here, she'd agree, lab leaks absolutely can happen and do happen. Um, and I think those who take the opposite view from COVID-19 being a lab leak at the Wuhan Institute of Virology agree no one's against extreme concern for the security, uh, particularly when you're working with potentially dangerous pathogens. However, that being said, I think the enormous weight of evidence really is for natural transmission. Um, and I, I don't want to go into detail in which I'm sure I'll embarrass myself for the mistake, <laughs> but there is now an enormous amount of evidence actually of infected animals at the wholesale seafood market in Wuhan. Um, unfortunately for us, the Chinese killed, for, unfortunately for the search for nail down on origin, the Chinese killed all the animals there. So we're left with kind of swabs, which have indications of infected animals. And yes, it is entirely possible that there was an infected human 
Sutton working in the lab at WIV, although they were not working on viruses pathogenically related to what became COVID-19, but infected human could conceivably have infected animals, but it's very, very unlikely. And all the other very dangerous infected diseases of late, uh, Ebola, AIDS, H1N1, um, you know, all, all of those have come through natural transmission. So it would be very, very odd if this were not the case now, I think. But again, Francis, as you know, it's politically convenient if you believe this is, to quote the former president, the China virus, it's very convenient to want to find some sort of conspiratorial theory behind it, whether it's a conspiracy of big pharma, pharmaceutical firms, um, excessive friends of China and so on, which is, again, sort of just clouds the search for truth. So, Simon, let's dive back into some of those earlier epidemics, the smallpox, mm. cholera, the bubonic plague. I mean, one shakes right. in horror. How much damage did they do and what tools did people have to combat them? Yeah, this this is the bulk of the of the book, and it is both extraordinary and moving. Um, I really start with smallpox because um, uh, smallpox inoculation, not the more famous, justifiably more famous vaccination. In other words, um, dealing with smallpox by um, taking um, cowpox matter and putting it on yourself or injecting yourself with it in order to give yourself a mild case of smallpox. But a hundred years before that. Um, at a time when nobody knew there was such a thing as an immune system. There were kind of rather enlightened hunches about what the body could do to fight off disease, but nobody knew what an immune system was. Nobody knew, you know, that, that it would produce antibodies. And there was an extraordinary moment in, in which a number of people, travellers abroad to the Ottoman Empire in particular, to Turkey and to North Africa, found uh, a population that seemed to be unharmed by smallpox. And smallpox in the first decades of the 1700s was killing one in six people. It was absolutely wow. terrifying. It's a relatively new disease. It seemed to come from nowhere. The plague could seem to be receding. So this is really shocking. And of course, Francis, it's an unbelievably counterintuitive thing to take some toxic pus from an infected body and stick it into your own perfectly healthy body or into the body of your children or friends or neighbors. It, it seems a mad thing to do. And those who are, those who are hostile to inoculation um, said so immediately. A, it's God's role to judge between life and death. And why would a mother, and as you know, a very important mother in the early chapters of the book, you know, if why would you do this to the healthy bodies of your children? What kind of mother is that? This woman, uh, Lady Mary Wortley Montague, was the wife of the British ambassador in uh, in Turkey, and she she made this discovery about um, uh, about populations being rescued. And she inoculated her six year old boy when her husband was conveniently off with the Turkish sultan, since she was clearly not confident he'd approve. He weathered it fabulously. Um, and then she did the same to her daughter, three-year-old daughter, when got to London and amazingly converted uh, the Princess of Wales, who became queen, uh, queen to George II. So she used her celebrity status, really, in a way. She was a poet, a published poet. She knew all the great and the good in the world of early 18th century England. She used it out of sheer 
conviction really that this was a real thing and the chances of you dying of smallpox went from one in six to um, to one in 50. I mean it made a measurable difference and we know it's measurable again an amazing thing because the um, the grand men of the Royal Society, the scientific organization in London, astonishingly were open to cures coming from abroad. They weren't suspicious of something that had its origins in the Middle East. On the contrary, they were profoundly interested and adopted it with astonishing speed. So smallpox was finally eradicated, the only disease we've ever eradicated in 1980. And of course, between the period you're talking about and then is Edward Jenner and the vaccine. Right. How was he received when he came up with his means of vaccinating people? Well, Jenner, yeah. we're talking about. Oh, yeah. Well, Jenner was, I mean, there's 100 years um, and a lot of experience with right. the early form of inoculation, slightly less measurably, you know, mm -hmm. definitely. I mean, there, there were there were some there were cases, as there are, you know, cases now. Hello, the Surgeon General of Florida, where people die after vaccination, but not caused by vaccination. That right. is the crucial distinction. Um, but there was an enormous amount of experience by the time you got to the early 19th century. Right. And indeed, rather wonderfully, I very briefly tell the story of this farmer called Benjamin Jesty, who actually was the first person to know that milkmaids really uh, managed right. to escape the smallpox. And actually, he was the first person to adopt it. So Jenna, Jenna could, I mean, this is a shocking thing to say about a very great man, but he could slipstream, really. Science very often, you know, moves forward with the accumulated gathering of ex empirical experience. And so um, Jenna had much less of a hard time, I think. It was the next big um, sort of moment of testing is when microbiology, baby discipline at the end of the 19th century, um, understands, first of all, that there is such things in the immune system and how you can actually waken antibody resistance um, by, by taking some of the pathogenic matter and again, deliberately inoculating yourself to, to bring it on, which would lower your risk rather than raise it. But again, an enormous amount of resistance, not least from the medical profession, um, happens again 100 years later. So now we've talked about the immune system a little bit. It, it remains fiercely difficult for people to understand. It's a very, very difficult thing to write about. But you have this sort of wonderful story um, about some of the earliest scientists, uh, Jewish scientists involved in understanding the immune system and early, early cholera vaccination. And it is so gripping. Right. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Well, yes, it was um, the, the, the great figure in the book is, um, for me anyway, is a man called Valdemar Hefkin, who was a Ukrainian Jew, who went to the University of Ukraine in, in Odessa, the only place, uh, the, the new so-called new university in Odessa, the only place where Jews could go, actually, and get a sort of professional scientific training. Um, and he, he's, apart from anything else, incredibly startlingly interesting. He's become as part of a group of students who arm the Jewish community um, against the threat of pogroms, which were very real in the early 1880s. He's thrown into prison three times. He's caught with a gun on in his own possession. He's rescued by his scientific supervisor at Odessa University, a man called Ailey Metchnikoff, who is the first person and indeed wins the Nobel Prize for in effect discovering how the immune system works. 
Menchnikov goes to the great, one of the two great centers. One is Berlin, but the other one is Louis Pasteur's brand new institute in Paris, which opens its doors in 1888. And Menchnikov brings Hafkin with him as a kind of rather lowly worm. I mean, as an assistant librarian, there were no jobs for him. And there, in between preparing the experiments for the world's first lectures on microbiology given by Emil Roux, um, Hafkin works, and it seems to be an impossible thing to do, on a vaccine for cholera. It takes him two years, an incredible amount of failure and heartbreak and frustration. And then in the summer of, of 1892, he, he has really cracked it. And he, uh, you know, um, despite Mechnikov having worries about this, he publishes the results of his own experiments um, with lab animals and on himself. He made a point of being the first person to take a vaccine for something as deadly cholera, in fact, inviting cholera on his own body, and then rounds up a number of his friends who obviously were very devoted to him, <laughs> had a, a deep reservoir of faith. None of them are, it, and it hurts, and they get a little fever, um, but of course they do not get their protected um, against the terrifying, lethal, troubled cholera. Hafkin then realizes again, an extraordinary breakthrough, which we take for granted now, um, that uh, as cholera is ebbing in Europe, you need to go to somewhere where there was a population that was still stricken by this disease, and also carry out what we now uh, think of correctly as randomized comparative clinical trials. So he wants a population um, in which person A gets the vaccine, person B does not. So he can measure, excuse me, he can measure um, how successful it is, which he ends up in the midst of British Imperial India, about which socially and culturally he really has no clue at all. And he hits ferocious resistance, not least from doctors who do not want to know about microbiology. They're into military-style disinfection, <laughs> which is not a bad idea when you're faced with cholera. It's a very bad idea when you're faced with plague because the rats just once they, you know, the carbolic acid comes flooding down the wall, the rats go on holiday onto the next village where it's not there. But he, the, the, the heart of the story is a scientist without a medical degree, has no degree as a doctor, so he's frowned on, a Russian Jew at a time when there's uh, deep suspicion of what the Russians are up to in Afghanistan and the Khyber Pass and so on. And he's thought of, he's accused of being a spy by the, the British medical authorities and the governing authorities. Um, and so he has to fight, fight, fight just to get the science accepted. So it's so telling that you mentioned that moment of, of injecting him, himself because of course Jonas Salk yeah. did it with the polio vaccine. And I yeah. of course think of, you know, the scientists, prominent scientists, politicians and others rolling up their arms for the COVID vaccine. Yes, Has that's that, right. It, tell me a little bit about that tradition and how it sort of it, it, yes, it, it is really so important and um, it remains incredibly important. And um, Hafkin understood he had to be a, a sort of what we now call a, a social psychologist almost, um, that persuasion was absolutely everything. It wasn't enough to sort of do it to yourself. You had to when you're in India. You must have Indian doctors. I mean, he needed them as translators, interpreters. He went hundreds and thousands of miles around India, um, not vaccinating the high and mighty, but vaccinating the poorest of the poor in the slums of Calcutta and Bombay and so on. 
<laughs> and therefore it was crucial really not just to have intermediaries who came from the communities you were trying to persuade that this is safe, um, but also religious leaders, very importantly, in Bombay, when he develops a similar vaccine against bubonic plague, um, he recruits the young Aga Khan, 19-year-old Aga Khan, who had somewhat of a Western education and therefore was prepared to listen attentively to what Western science had to offer. But also there was kind of personal bond established. So the Aga Khan has himself vaccinated against the return of the plague. By the way, we've forgotten that pandemic, which killed between 20 and 30 million people between the 1890s and the late 1920s. The Aga Khan has himself, but also his family, his children, um, in, inoculated with the plague vaccine. And the same thing happened to a wonderful woman called Farah Sassoon from the Jewish community, an important community, they're very small in Bombay. So he sort of understood, you know, the imperatives of sympathetic persuasion. And you needed to develop a kind of way of calming people's fears. And we still really haven't cracked this. Maybe it's harder now with the kind of, you know, tribalism of the internet, really, where people can, you know, instantly reproduce completely um, unjustified faith in ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine and so on, um, and to do it. Um, there, there was very much a kind of face-to-face -face experience, and, that, and he understood how important that was. Simon, I've just come back from New York at a climate event and I listen to you and I think of so many similarities between these, you know, bugs don't respect borders, nor do weather events, climate events. Right. When you're thinking about this history, how do you think about <laughs> pandemic preparedness for the future and how we need to cope with the inevitable future threats that will come our way? Yeah, well, I, I, I suppose, again, the good news is that this the terrifying and bitter experience of of COVID has taught us certain crucial things. I mean, Jesus, the head of the um, of the WHO, was exaggerating a bit, or he was speaking hyperbolically when he said, um, when the vaccine was first made available, imploring that it should be more equitably distributed between the developing world and the undeveloped, uh, and the, the developing world and the developed world, not just available to nations and societies that could afford the advanced cash to procure often excessive supplies for their own population. What she said was, no one is safe until everyone is safe. And it was a, it was a good thing to say, if a bit, as I say, a bit much of a hyperbole, uh, I mean, the, you know, under-vaccinated populations of Southern Africa, including South Africa itself, wanted the pharmaceutical companies to waive patents, for example, as you know, Francis, and that sort of didn't happen. And therefore, the population was extremely under-vaccinated compared to the developed world. And lo and behold, that presented um, an opportunity for viral mutation. And we got Omicron. Um, so I think those kinds of lessons... I hope have been learned, and the absolute imperative of a, a better degree. I mean, there were there were attempts, Covax famously, um, to for you know intelligent, rational, in in the collective self interest to actually do this internationally. But they were, um, you know, they they were met by all sorts of obstacles and and imperfections. I think we're beginning to understand since you've just 
come back from that conference, how closely connected climate change and the degradation of environments are to the generation of new rounds of infectious diseases. Not least, I wrote about this at the beginning, very beginning of the book, the collapse of barriers between wild animal populations and densely human, densely settled human populations. Um, there, are, there are all sorts of things which can be done. The um, the containment or reversing of the trade in wild animals, um, which again is, is partly responsible for making opportunities of transmission between wild animal populations and human populations much, much easier. So we can be on the lookout. The problem, again, is that populist politics sees traction in being able to dissuade people from collaborating internationally or listening to listening to science. I mean, it is truly astonishing to me that the Surgeon General of Florida could actually tell a, a population that, um, you know, the person who knows best about what's good for you is you um, and don't automatically listen to those who have some knowledge. You know, I mean, again, my friends, long dead friends in the philosophical enlightenment would be rolling in their grave to hear that. You know, the kind of happy sovereignty of ignorance. It's really awful. And we don't have time really to, to cope with it, do we? You know that, you write about it. Simon Sharma. I wish we had time for a lot more conversation. We Me don't. Too. I've got many more co uh, questions for you, so we'll make another time to talk about them. Thank you so much for joining us today on Washington Post Live. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.